0: What up, people? Tuesday, the 21st of June. Guy Adami here. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan for Market Call. This week's Mark This Week. Today's Market Call brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And we're powered by Open Exchange this week. What am I thinking, Dan?
1: It feels like a week ago since last we spoke. It, it does. I mean, Guy, no one's complaining about three-day weekends, you know, and, and obviously for good reasons, too, here. So Juneteenth celebrated yesterday as a market holiday here. You know, you were calling, listen, you know I have this thing. I call you Nostradamus a little bit. You know, you say things about the markets, and sometimes they happen, and, and, you know, we don't talk about the ones that don't happen. But on many occasions in 2022, you basically called it to a day or so. You were thinking we're going to get a big rally here. You know, that Fed meeting, very well. well. telegraphed. We had a lot of volatility into it and out of it. And I think a lot of people were thinking about kind of how things went in March, right? We sold off really hard into that Fed meeting and we rallied really hard out of it. So we've had some back and forth action over the last week, but it really feels like the market wants to rally. Sentiment got really, really negative here.
0: That's exactly right. And, you know, I said it on Wednesday's Fast Money, and I think I probably thought on market call as well that the market had set up for a pretty meaningful rally. Carter talks about it all the time. Still a couple unfilled gaps now to the upside in the S&P 500. And I want to be careful here. I'm not suggesting I'm bullish by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think the S&P 500 could do a bit of a retrace back to the levels that we broke down from. And I said that on Wednesday. Now, obviously, Thursday it didn't pan out. Thursday was a pretty nasty day. Friday, a bit of a muddled day, but today we're starting to get this bounce. And I think this bounce can last for a period of time. When I say period of time, I think it's either going somewhere between 4,100 and 4,200 in the S&P. And again, these days that could happen in a week or we do the sort of slow grind. I think if you're bearish, which I am, I think the likelihood of a faster move is in the cards. But if we do sort of a slow and steady, Dan, You're going to start to hear a lot of people talking about maybe the bottom is in. I don't think it is.
1: Yeah. No, listen, you know, again, we are clearly in a bear market for many different risk assets. We're looking at the S&P 500 futures chart here. This is the year-to-date, Guy. You see that downward-sloping 50-day moving average. It's just below... 4,100 The 200 day is all the way up there at 4,400. I don't Mm -hmm. think we kind of even get near that, you know, in the next few months. And I don't think we're going to get anywhere near unchanged. I think there's a lot of strategists who are kind of still hoping for a late year rally or so. But when you look at this S&P futures chart backed out, Guy, a few years, you get to some of those levels that we've been talking about, that pre-pandemic level just below 3,400. I kind of September 2020 high, you know, you get in and around that 3,500, 3,400 level, then you can start talking about what it will take to bottom. And there's a lot of other inputs and we're going to hit a bunch of those market inputs, so economic inputs that could get us there. But you were saying 3750 You revised it on the way down to 3400 That's based on what you thought about what the S&P earnings multiple should be and where S&P earnings are likely to go. How do you feel about the NASDAQ in general? Again, if we're not going to start really talking about the potential for the S&P to bottom, we know that the NASDAQ futures are down 30% on the year or so. They had a little bit of a bounce here today. That's the year-to-date chart. You see all the way up there at 13,000, me That was the breakdown level from early May. Seems like a long ways off, but not long ago that we were there.
0: Yeah, we do. Listen, we're doing Tuesdays or CME Day, so we're doing things through the lens of futures. But in order to get through that lens, mm-hmm. you got to sort of look at a couple of individual names. But the one name, that we talk about all the time, and I'm not suggesting we need a chart or anything, but I think the the way we get lower in both the S&P and the NASDAQ is if Apple would give it up. And quite frankly, Katie Huberty, who's been sort of the ax in terms of a strategist or analyst for Apple, you know, she's been pretty much of a steadfast bull literally for the last five or six years, as long as I can remember. She sort of has changed her tune a little bit over the last month or so, and that's something to keep an eye on. And I think there's a very good chance in this backdrop that maybe Apple doesn't miss the quarter. I don't even know if that's important, but maybe some of the guidance you hear out of Apple could be sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back in form of both the NDQ... And the S&P, Dan, Nathan.
1: Yeah, you know, and Guy, if we were to get to kind of 12,000 and you do the math down to 10,000, you know, like that would be, you know, again, we're seeing one step forward, a couple steps back. And you were talking about the idea of like, how do you kind of think about putting a bottom into an equity market, which is really, if you think about the major indices, is only six months into a meaningful correction. The NASDAQ topped out in November, the S&P topped out in January. Here we are coming into the last couple of weeks of the q two here. So this has not been that long of a slog here. So if you think about past bear markets and equity markets, you know, the one thing, it is time. It takes time to kind of come out, work out, or work off a lot of excesses here and kind of move forward here. So that's the SMB, the NASDAQ. Let's talk about some of the inputs though here, Guy. It seems like the idea of a recession in 2022, where most strategists and economists were thinking it would be a 2023 thing, is starting to be priced into this year. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk, you know, again, a CEO, a prominent CEO, whether you like him or not, whether you like the products or not. His company, you know, did have a trillion dollar market cap not too long ago. It is a multinational. He's saying this morning to a conference in Cotter um, that, you know, maybe we have a recession sooner than later. We also see Goldman ratcheting up the probabilities they're cutting GDP outlook. And then Morgan Stanley, which our friend Mike Wilson over there, the head strategist, he's been saying that he thinks the likelihood of a recession is uh, very good in 2022. And then also equities will not bottom until we kind of round a lot of some of the stuff that we're talking about. Talk to me about the fu- the idea that strategists and economists are kind of coming around to Yeah, the well, I think
0: they see what we see. And obviously, they look at, look, my sense is they've seen it all along. They've just been waiting. In terms of Elon Musk specifically, my sense is, and this is just my opinion, I'm, I'm not asking you to comment on this. I think a lot of what he says has become political. So it's sort of, to me, it's some passive aggressive thing towards the current administration. That's just my sense. I also think there's some semblance of truth to it in terms of what's happening in the economy. He said it, Jamie Dimon said it a week or a couple weeks ago as well in terms of what he sort of sees on the horizon. Listen, Dan, we might be in a recession right now for all we know, statistically, right? I mean, it could have a negative print and that would make us statistically in a recession. I don't think it necessarily changes my view. And when all of a sudden you find yourself in one, again, I don't think it necessarily changes how we look at the market in terms of earnings, though. And I think that's the important thing. Is there going to be an earnings recession? And I think that's what we should be focused on. That Mike Wilson note, I think, is the important one. We've had him on our podcast. We've talked to him a number of times. He's been pretty steadfast and right in his assertion that he thought the market was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And when he says something like that, another 15 to 20%, I listen. And it sort of lines up exactly with what we've been saying over the last couple of weeks and what we said for the first few minutes here.
1: Yeah so you know you've been calling for yield curve inversion the 210 we know that before the 210 Inverted um, not too long ago that we also had other parts of the curve inverting So I think the idea that some economists who like to say well not all inversions predict Recessions or bear markets or any of that, look at this chart guy yeah, going back 22 years since the start of 2000 You can see the inversions. Okay, we had one in 2000 We had one in 0607 and we had one in 19 and all three times We did have a bear market that ensued and we did have a recession that ensued what's interesting thing here is that we've had two inversions in 2022 right we're debating about a recession you and I are of the belief that's a kind of a foregone conclusion if you will but talk to me uh, in in, you know about how we get to this inverted yield curve because we have a chart also of the 10-year US Treasury the last time it was trading at these levels was late 2018 and we know that the stock market at that point went down 20% over the next couple months after that inversion and the Fed had to pivot so we had this move quickly, almost up to 3.5% mm-hmm. from, what, 27 or something just a month ago. I mean, the velocity, and you've been talking about it, in which we moved that way, but we've come back now, and we're contending with that kind of 3.25 level from 2018. What does it mean to you that the long end is struggling here, and we're going to hit the CME Fed Watch tool as far as what Fed funds are expected. What is this telling you, and how do you extrapolate it back to the economy and the stock market?
0: Well, I think this is one of the more important, Sean, you can look at. Again, just my opinion. But I think yield curves mean a lot. And what does it suggest to me? It's what we've been saying for quite some time, that in the front end, inflation is clearly a problem. And that's manifested itself in two-year yields, effectively going from 25 basis points all the way up to current levels in a pretty short amount of time, by the way. It's a pretty uh, dramatic move for the two-year. In terms of the 10-year, it makes a lot of sense what it's doing. Now, today, Yields, I think, are going up a tad. That makes sense. Bonds are selling off. Why, in my opinion? Because the market's rallying. I think people found the bond market in the form of buying the TLT, sending rates lower last week, as the market sold off. So today's action makes sense. But you got to look at things a little longer term when you talk about yield curves. And what I think is going to happen is the two years going to stay stubbornly high, maybe even continue to grind higher, because I do think, and we'll talk about it, that energy is still going to be a problem. Yeah. And the back end of the curve is going to continue to sort of either sort of stay at these levels or go slightly lower. I think we're going to sort of invert somewhere between, let's call it 3.4 in the two year and maybe 3.15 or so in the 10. And that makes a lot of sense for a myriad of different reasons, not least of which, Dan, economies are slowing. Our economy is slowing. That's not a bad thing. That's not an un-American thing to say. That's just reading the data and trying to sort of read the tea leaves. And that is suggest that things are
1: slowing down. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, this is becoming a chorus here. The Wall Street Journal this morning. Recession probability soars as inflation worsens. Economists Mm -hmm. see interest rate increases rising likelihood of recession to 44% in the coming 12 months. And then here was a quote from this article since the journal began asking the question in mid-05. A 44% recession probability is seldom seen outside of an actual recession. So to your point before, we could be in one right now. So the realization all of a sudden, and you've seen that the pace in which the probabilities have increased, that's really important. Ed Yardeni, and we like his work here, we quote him quite quite often. It's not inevitable, he's saying of a recession as inflation seems slowing. So he's in the camp that we've hit peak inflation or we will this summer, and that will kind of help maybe stave off a recession or so. I find that all kind of interesting. That's gonna be the battle that's kind of playing itself out this summer or into the fall guy. But this was one, this was a headline, and this is former Treasury uh, Treasury Secretary Stop one second real quick.
0: I'm going to interrupt, but, you know, it's not inevitable. Yeah, there are only two things that are inevitable, Dan. Death and taxes. Everything else, you know, you never know what can happen. And I respect Ed's work a great deal as well. He says inflation is slowing. I would agree with that as well. Inflation probably is slowing, but guess what? If it slows down to 7.5%, That's still a problem for a Federal Reserve that wants inflation at 2%. So he can say it's slowing all he wants, and he'd be technically correct. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods by any stretch. So anyway, please continue.
1: Yeah, no. And, and, and you know, again, I think that's really important. And we talk about the Fed, they have this dual mandate. And, and again, you know, 2022 is one of those years It started, you know, last year, really, where the Fed were saying that inflation was transitory. And we all spent lots of time thinking about what the definition of transitory, I was clearly in that camp, just so you know, guy I really thought we'd have a median reversion. And you were not in that camp. And you thought specifically oil and other industrial commodities were heading higher. But, but again, this is where we are right now. And I just do think it's 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 kind of interesting that everyone wants to dunk on anybody who like got transitory wrong. We're all wrong in the markets. We're all wrong on these inputs. None of them are in our control. But here's one that I think is really interesting. If the Fed is routinely trying to solve to their dual mandate of stable prices and full employment, this headline from ex-Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers that the Fed basically needs to create a situation where unemployment gets to 5% and needs to stay that way to kind of ease inflation. (laughs) This is really curious to me because, again, this was an interesting um, tweet from a guy named Jeff Stein who writes for the Washington Imposed, he covers the White House uh, and covers the economy. This one is really something, guy. That's going to pick, I think, your your antennas up here. To state the obvious, a five percent unemployment rate would be devastating joblessness for millions of poor Americans. So, to me, this just shows you just how screwed up everything is right now. Is that you know we need to we need to bring unemployment off of forty year lows because the economy is too hot because inflation is too high, and we need to put some of the most vulnerable workers out of work right now to kind of fix this problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I literally, I could go on a 45-minute soliloquy about this without question. And quite frankly, I've done it before when I do some speaking stuff, but I'll save it. Instead of 45 minutes, I'll try to do the 30-second part. You know, the people that he's talking about here are clearly the people that you're talking about, the disenfranchised, the people that really did not benefit from the largesse of our Federal Reserve in 08 and 09, and then subsequently a couple of years ago when they added liquidity to the system. Those people were compromised mm-hmm. then. They were forced to do things they probably didn't want to do. And now they're getting screwed on the way out. This is, not, this is not going to hurt the people in sort of the upper middle class and the top end. These Fed policies that now are looking for this 5% level, which, you know what, for Larry Summers, statistically, he's right. That's exactly what we need in order to combat inflation. We need about five years worth of unemployment around 5%. And that will, at a at certain point, sort of knock this fever of inflation down. The problem is, Dan, to your point... The people that it hurts are the most vulnerable. And whatever reason, they don't seem to acknowledge it. I've said it for hundreds of times. You know, Fed policy screws the lower and middle class. And the fact that they don't see the chasm between uh, the have and the
1: have-nots has never been greater is really problematic to me. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, you know, I believe that, that these are you know, a, a, as you do too. They're, they're, they're good people. I think they're trying to solve for lots of different outcomes, you know, if you will. And, and I don't believe that they're, you know, by any means, I think they they should recognize that it does kind of create that, that income inequality gap that just keeps increasing, I guess, at every crisis and every time they need to put their pedal on the metal. So I, I agree with that guy. Yeah. And, or- and
0: I want to be clear, nor do I. I don't think they're bad people yeah. at all. And, and yeah. I've said this, I just want to say it one more time. Again, I, I think that history is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions, and we're seeing it now. Yeah. And to your point about dunking, I'm not looking to dunk on anybody. I mean, it was pretty clear to me for a long time yeah. that this transitory was all bullshit, quite frankly. Yeah. And the fact that it either didn't see it or didn't acknowledge it doesn't matter. That's a problem. I'm not a Fed governor, and I'm not suggesting yeah. I should be. I'm just some hack that plays, you know, somebody's stock <laughs> you can pick stocks on television. But with that said, the fact that it was painfully clear to me and oh, by the way, the inflation that they longed for for years was right in front of their face for so long. That,
1: to me, is the problem. Yeah, no, and, and I did not mean to imply you. You don't dunk on anyone. You are a, you are a gracious market participant and athlete, if you will. Um, I just feel like you know sometimes it makes sense to turn off the Twitter. Some of the some of the discourse back and forth is just not particularly useful, um, guy. We mentioned the CME FedWatch tool earlier, and you see that the probability for um, a 2.25 mm-hmm. to 2.50 Fed funds rate at the July meeting. It seems like a near certainty at this point and really, you know, I think the market originally rallied after that Fed meeting in the Q&A when um, you know, Powell was asked if 75 basis points are going to be the routine hikes as we get into the fall. He kind of like took that off the table, but that goes back to that, you know, the, the prior meeting to that, right? Remember the beginning of May when, you know, the market rallied a little bit because he said that 75 was off the table and then they end up doing 75 so if you look at this the cme fed watch tool you see that all right let's take it out to september here a little bit and it's about a 50 50 chance right that we get up to you know this um you know three three uh-huh. percent bound or so which is interesting because that's where we have 10 year at 3.3 percent right now that's what it's kind of flirting with here so we're going to keep an eye on the movements of this over the course of the summer because it really does speak to the sentiment as it relates to what the fed may or may not have to do based on some of the really important inputs that they're focused on obviously like inflation yeah
0: and, and this is one of those things i think you absolutely have to have up on your screen just mm-hmm. to sort of gauge what people's sense is is what what's happening I'll tell you this if you look out even further and go out to sort of the back half of next year there are a lot of people out there the market is pricing in a Fed rate cut and I think that's going to be really interesting to see when and if we get there yeah I'll say this I think there's a really good chance that it happens prior to the back half of next year but that's not for this conversation I think I think we've all come to the realization that and I'll give Jerome Powell a pass on this one when he answered Steve Leisman's question I think he just, I, he whiffed on that question, quite frankly. He painted yeah. himself in a bit of a corner that he didn't need to, and the market liked it for a day. The problem is uh, that
1: comment, I think, came back to sort of bite him in the ass a little bit. Yeah. Well, if you've been listening <clears throat> to Market Call here, you know we've been kind of focused on two things that people didn't think – going to happen. Um, one was that unemployment is likely to tick up and every day we see different companies, whether they be large public companies scaling back, hiring ambitions, or private companies that are really having a hard time with a pullback in valuations um, and really this kind of overexpansion over the last couple of years when money was, we're seeing lots of headlines about layoffs and, and also, you know, I'll make another point guy, we we're talking about the Fed policy, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were worried about the disinflationary kind of aspects of big tech, right? And the idea of automation and all these sorts of things. I think we get back to that, man. And so you can say whatever you want about our immigration policies and how that's left us kind of lack lacking workers and that sort of thing. I think we're gonna get back to a place where unemployment is likely to go back to 5% anyway, because I just think that some of those low end jobs that benefited during the pandemic are basically going to be automated away as we kind of get further away from the pandemic. But that's another conversation. Also, no, I say that all get-
0: the time. You're right. Technology is the biggest deflationary force yeah. in history. And see, that's one of the problems, again, not to get on this sort of soapbox, but one of the Fed was trying to solve for inflation. Meanwhile, they were up against incredibly deflationary forces, forces of technology that they can't yeah. combat and so inflation was there and you know you talk about solving for things i agree that's their mandate the
1: problem is i think they got to change their mandates because i think they're antiquated in my opinion yeah well so so two things and i know this sounds like so 2008 2009 so we were talking about Unemployment and we've been talking about housing, All right, So we know that the stock market is already in a bear market and we talk about the kind mm-hmm. of negative wealth effect and why do we focus on this idea of a recession because sometimes when corporates and consumers hear that we're actually in a recession, they change their behavior a little bit, right? And so one of the things that people didn't think could go up was unemployment and they didn't think it could go down was housing. Well, if anything, we've learned anything in the last 15 years is that housing can definitely go down. And we also know that a lot of households, a lot of their wealth is tied to a very illiquid asset, very different than your stock market holdings and this and that, whatever. And when you have the stock market go down, followed by the housing market, you have a a dent in confidence. We saw that consumer confidence print from last month here. So in the May, readings of the, the new home sales, or existing home sales, excuse me, Guy, we saw that they dropped to an almost two-year low, but housing prices hit an all-time high. Talk to me a little bit about housing, because we have a chart of the XHB, the ETF, that tracks the sector, and there's also a lot of retailers in there. And you look at this thing here, right? And you see where it is on a technical level on the chart. The XHB was telling you that the housing was going to kind of roll over at some point in 2022. When I say rollover, I don't mean crash, but it was going to basically decelerate in the gains. And some of the supply-demand dynamics from the pandemic were going to shift back the other way. Talk to me about your view on housing here.
0: Yeah, well, I think by definition, if you think what's taking place right now is bullish in housing, you're just not paying attention. As a matter of fact, affordability has never been worse. And it's an interesting chart you bring up. If you just go back to that prior slide talking about the price of an average house now, I mean, this comes down to supply-demand fundamentals. There's just not enough supply out there. But on the back end of it, unemployment's going to start to tick higher. And oh, by the way, and as we talked about, 30-year mortgages have basically doubled in two and a half or three months. That's a catastrophic move. And it's made what was a pretty interesting housing market, a pretty uh, interesting housing market for the other side of that coin. You see how quickly it flips. So I happen to think the XHB can roll over. I don't think it's the best constructed ETF. But I think it gives you the good narrative. It gives you a good picture of what's going on. So I think we're in for some, um, listen, cooling off period in housing, which is exactly what the Fed wants. I don't think it was coincidence, by the way, last week on Wednesday, when one of the last comments Jerome Powell made was to millennials considering buying a house. And I'm paraphrasing now. I think he said something to the effect of you may want to put that off. And that speaks to everything in terms of wanting to tamp down demand and cool things off.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agreed. And, and again, why why is this chart important to me, the XHB? Because you know, not too long ago, at the end of last year, it was making basically on a runaway breakout, making mm-hmm. new all time highs. And sometimes when you see the price action and underlines kind of diverge from what some of the headlines are, some of the fundamentals, I think it's really important to take note. Another one is kind of interesting, talking about something that they'd love to cool off, commodity prices. And mm-hmm. you know, over the last year, Guy, we've <clears> seen <throat> lumber and we've seen lots of other input costs and in steel. We've seen a lot of volatility. We've seen kind of these parabolic moves and then come back to trend. Well, here's one in crude, and this is the one that gets the most attention, right? Because the administration, they've tapped the strategic petroleum reserve. Biden's actually going to meet with MBS in Saudi Arabia. They're looking to do all sorts of deals to get the price of oil down. Now, obviously, that's political to a large degree. I do think they want to help consumers, um, but they're also threatening oil companies with windfall taxes and all this sort of stuff, which I think you and I don't exactly um, agree with unless there is definitive cases of price gouging. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think that's particularly cool in, in a period like we're in right now. Talk to me about this crude chart. Um, you know, again, we're back at trend, Guy. It seems like we're, you and I talked about this last week, I think on Market Call. There was a tape bomb that there was some sort of easing intentions between Ukraine and Russia. You know, crude oil is probably back at 100 like that. So talk to me about this trend. Talk to me about the fundamentals. And, you know, are we likely to kind of see oil prices moderate, especially as we get through the driving season? Yeah, in the US? I, I mean, I think I think if you just look at the landscape right now,
0: to your point about Russia, Ukraine, let's start there. I mean, if things were to sort of abate or cool down, whatever word you want to use, I think you're right in your assertion that the knee-jerk reaction in crude is going to be lower. I get that. I'll say this as well, though. Some of the sanctions that are put in place are not going to calm down, or not going to stop overnight. So I think that selling will be short-lived, my opinion. This Joe Biden, President Biden going to Saudi Arabia... Um, that's a desperate act, in my opinion. I think it's going to be counterproductive at the end of the day. God only knows what one needs to give up in order for them to add more barrels to their daily production. I just don't think it's going to manifest itself in a meaningful, sustainable sell-off in the crude market. So you have to look at the trend line. And the trend line's been in place. The supply-demand fundamentals have been in place for quite some time. And this started, you know, everybody wants to point again to the last few months for this crude move. The reality is, Things were set in place long before. They were set in place, obviously, with ESG, when a lot of these companies ratcheted back CapEx. Obviously, COVID hit. That was sort of the double whammy. And then the crude, oil, the crude market was sort of left to its own devices. And then very quietly, supply-demand came into the equation, and fundamentals matter. So people laugh at me when I say crude would be here, regardless of Russia Ukraine. I happen to believe it. I think a lot of people coming around there now. But the trend line is your friend right now, Dan. And if we pull that up one more time, this is what you trade against. I still think we're lower left, upper right. Uh, I think this is intact, obviously, until we breach that. And if we breach that, I think the move lower could be pretty precipitous. But with that said,
1: and we're going to talk about this quickly. The stocks have priced a lot of that in. Um, Yeah, I think the XLE is important, um, Guy. We know that 40 plus percent of that is Exxon and Chevron, right? So the large integrated names. And you look at that move that it had this year, I know that that was um, an area that you were specifically focused on. I mean, there is a bull market everywhere, right, Guy Adami here? But that move down 20%, since the start, I, I don't know. I think it was like June eighth. Exxon mm-hmm. was making new all time highs. Um, it seemed like every news organization was pretty geeked up about that, and it seemed like it wanted to go the other way. Well, it has. Do we get back to that two hundred day moving average down there at sixty six and a half, and that uptrend? Because again, you know, like that was just an emotional move lower. If there was anything fundamental, guy, you would have this XLE back at that uptrend or at least the two hundred day.
0: This was people selling first in terms of these stocks, asking questions later. And why? Well, for a couple of the things we mentioned, and obviously that Joe Biden, President Biden letter to oil executives didn't help. And you know, I think that is somewhat short-sighted. And quite frankly, uh, to your point about, unless they're grossly uh, gouging prices here, I don't think that's really what's going on. I mean, right now uh, in this country, refineries are running at close to 95% capacity. We're not building refineries anymore, and these are companies that you basically told a few years ago during the campaign that, hey, we're going to make you extinct. So they weren't going to spend any money under those set of circumstances. So you're asking them to do things that you didn't want them to do uh, two and a half or so years prior. The whole thing is madness. With that said, to your point, this move down seems to be emotional. I'm with you. Yes, we can trade down to that 2 in a day moving average. Each day that number is going to get a little higher. I think we'll probably get down to about sixty eight and a half, sixty-nine in
1: Exxon. And then I think you you yeah. get into the name once again. Well, you know what, guy, you make a great point. And and you know, I think what this situation has taught us, the pandemic has taught us about supply chains and, and reliance on kind of, you know, uh, other nations for really critical commodities and and It just shows you that if these things were to come back in, there is going to be – when Elon Musk a couple months ago was was basically tweeting about – greater production of energy, you know that we've gotten the policy wrong to some degree. And I'm not here to kind of parse through that a little bit. And And I, I would be a buyer. If they overshot dramatically to the downside, to that kind of mid-60s range, I think it makes sense for all the reasons that you mentioned going forward. We are not going to be in this situation again. And Europe cannot be in this situation again. You know, it's interesting. I read an article, you know, when, when they had that nuclear disaster in Japan in 2011, Merkel, Angela Merkel, um, who, you know, obviously was president of germany back then they shut down a lot of nuclear power for fear of that and they became really reliant on russian russian natural gas and oil and and that's really i guess ground zero for Mm -hmm. the situation that they're in right now so i don't think world leaders are going to make those mistakes again really quickly guy i want to want to take your um pulse on the dixie the u.s dollar here you know the start of the year about 96 we know half of that Basket of currencies of the euro and it had that move up to 106. That is a huge move in currency terms here And it's really diverged from that uptrend that's been in place since um, Last spring of 2021 here. You see that rising 200-day moving average getting close to 98 You see that uptrend and the reason we bring up this dollar Right after crude is that the last time the Fed was coming off a zero interest rate and they were tightening This is back in 1415 Crude oil had come off dramatically over the next couple of years. So you had the dollar rally. You had crude come in. Thoughts here on what happens to the Dixie because it really has been constructive, except for the fact that, you know, a couple months ago, it really just took off. And I'm wondering if that really has most to do with the war between Russia and Ukraine, yeah. and are we likely to fix that in the and next And this leads us
0: to a question from Jay who asks, is the dollar rolling over here? Other major currencies don't seem attractive by any means. And so i I answer that question, look, I think it's pretty clear as to why the dollar rallied the way it did and the dollar rallied when the Fed basically changed its course. So you understand why, you know, a Fed trying to be responsible is somewhat dollar positive. I also think when the market started to sell off uh, in a a pretty precipitous way, you saw a flight to quality in the form of the US dollar. But something changed last week and don't underestimate this. The Swiss National Bank seemingly out of nowhere uh, raised rates 50 basis points last week and why do i think that's interesting because again out of nowhere now you start to see other central banks acting in kind so the dollar has been on its own with our fed trying to be responsible now other central banks are acting in kind which theoretically should sort of uh make this move higher in the dollar abate a bit i do think the dollar can come off here i think there's some vulnerability to the downside but I also think that if the market sells off like I think it will, once we get to that 4,142 level in the S&P, that will be the next leg higher for the dollar. So if I'm handicapping this, yeah. market rallies, people get out of the U.S. dollar that they flowed to as a safe haven, dollar comes off, uh, the market tops out around 4,100 in the S&P-ish, uh, starts to sell off, then that dollar is going to rally again as once again people flee, uh, flow into the dollar as a safe haven asset.
1: Which brings us to the shiny metal, which is pretty interesting to me, Guy, because if you think about other than that kind of February, March sort of spike in gold here, it's actually kind of held in pretty well. And on a relative basis relative to crypto, and we're going to talk about that in a second, you know, if you're of the mindset, and I know you are, that the Fed is going to do a lot of this heavy lifting early, is, as fast as they can, but they may soon have to go the other way. And you think that's going to be a catalyst for crypto, and it should also be a catalyst for gold. And the fact mm-hmm. is, the relative strength by gold right here, and it's really up year over year, really sets up for when the Fed pivots that this thing could rock and roll a little bit yeah look again I'm, a bi- I'm obviously
0: a bit of a gold bug without question people say wait a second why is gold performing so poorly when inflation's running so hot and that's a valid legitimate question i'll effort and answer here i'll say this gold was rallying when inflation was a problem the only difference is the fed wasn't acknowledging that it was a problem when they subsequently did acknowledge it was a problem and try to combat it is when gold started to sell off so if you think about it that way It makes a lot of sense. To your point, though, if you do think that they're going to pivot once again and get more accommodative, I think that's going to unlock some huge potential for both gold and the next thing we're going to talk about, which is Bitcoin. So I don't think it's coincidental that gold has sold off the way it has. And I definitely don't think it's coincidental that Bitcoin topped out around the same time that the Fed changed their posture.
1: Yeah. So just real quickly on this one, and and, you know, we've had Carter on market call routinely over the last few months calling for kind of lower lows and really um, a pretty sharp break in the Bitcoin and you look at this chart and you know going back to um, you know the start of 2021 you know that 30,000 level you know was really important support when it broke through over you know the last week or so I mean it went straight to 20,000 that 20,000 level if you go all the way back to 2017 that was the high it was also the breakout level um, 2020 so it's trying to find a little support here but this one, really feels like this is not going to be bottom guy it's going to take some time at lower levels in my opinion i don't own bitcoin i don't find bitcoin particularly interesting i do find ethereum kind of interesting i do think of it as a kind of you know a a smart contract computing platform and i think a lot of cool innovation is going to come off the back of that might there be different um, sorts of smart contract platforms that emerge that are faster cheaper all that sort of stuff sure solana i own a little of that one but i have been buying ethereum as it crashed to just below a thousand and this one is just I think of this as kind of a high valuation unprofitable sort of tech stock allocation and it keeps me kind of very focused on crypto so that's my quick two cents there Gaia Dami. and again you know that is not investment advice because anybody who said anything other than to sell crypto over the last six or nine months has been giving you bad advice there. It's unbelievable. And the fact
0: that it happened on a weekend is really interesting to me. I think a couple of months from now, we'll look back to this past weekend and say that was a really odd move in both Bitcoin and ETH. But we'll talk about that at another time, Dan, because our time is not only short, we've run over time. I want to thank everybody for joining us. That was today's market call. I want to thank our sponsor, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And thank you to Open Exchange, who powers us. If you liked this, enjoyed it, whatever, leave a comment. We want to hear from you. Make fun of me that I'm wearing a blue t shirt underneath my dress shirt. That's fine. Dan and I will be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. with Carter Braxton Worth, who I will tell you is absolutely bringing his A game. We'll see you then. See ya.